0: I'm Pastor Ron, one of the pastors here, and um, get to teach out of Daniel chapter 9 this morning. So we're going to have some fun wading through this, and good to see everyone together. Um, I want to bring up a, an announcement, though, before we start, um, an, an outreach event that we're going to be doing. We do every year, at least the last few years we have, and we are going to do it again this year if we get enough help, and that's Living Nativity. So the key to doing Living Nativity is the participation. Last year we had a little over 100 people from Village participate in some way. And so that, if I had to define an all-hands-on deck event, that would be it. Because I think we get more for that than any other event. And our theme this year with the Nativity is hope. Hope. Because we really believe that after 2020 and to end 2020 that there is hope to be found in Jesus Christ. And our world needs to hear that. And so that is why we're doing Living Nativity. We've changed it up a little bit to keep some separation from cast and guests and just to be um, to take the precautions asked of us by our local government. And so we think we have a plan that um, we, we met again this week and went through it and read through the script. And, and this is doable, guys. This is doable in a way that I think will we'll share the gospel and... Um, something that we can do in 2020. And so I invite you in your worship folder, you see a, a flyer there of ways you can help. Um, if you could check off as many of those of how you'd like to help and sign in blood. Uh, no, no. <laughs> okay, maybe not that part. But there's a basket at the back that you could put these in when um, you have them. Or um, Kim, I think, is going to be at a booth out in the, the courtyard that you could talk to her with any questions. This is something that I would love to see us come together as a congregation and make sure we do for our neighborhood, for our communities. Um, this world needs Jesus right now. One of the reasons it needs Jesus is we're at a, a crossroads, I think, of hope or anxiety. Do we, do we give in to angst? Do we give in to uncertainty? Or do we have a peace that God is in control? And this week was the election, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the election except to say there were a lot of ups and downs this week, no matter which side you were on. There was a lot of uncertainty, um, a lot of trying to figure out how to count, and um, realizing that for for either side, the feeling was very tangible that the future of our country relies on on whether someone in a room can count votes. This morning, as we look at Daniel we're going to realize that is not what our future relies on. But it relies on something much more stable. I, I loved a couple of the memes I saw. One was, um, as states are having trouble counting, it was send in the homeschool moms. Um, <laughs> they'd have it done and organized by colored bins by now. <laughs> like, yeah, this meme, um, I love this one going around. Because Nevada was a little slow on their results, right? We can, we can be honest. Do we have this picture? It's coming. There we go. We can say, it can't take that long to count votes. And Nevada would say to us, the building on Garden Grove Boulevard. <laughs> now, praise God, that is being built now. And, but after what, 10, 15 years, it's gone forward. That was my favorite just for some local humor. But this morning, where, where, where we want to go is, we want to remind ourselves that God is in control of all of the future, of every moment in the future, whether it's our country or the church around the world. I pray that as we even talked about the church that is being persecuted around the world, that we realize there is a bigger picture than the United States of America. There is a bigger picture going on that involves how do we share Jesus with this world? How do we be the church? And and some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are being devastatingly persecuted. But they are still the church. And they can still have peace in who God is even when displaced from their homes. They can have peace that the church will not die even when they're wondering how they're going to feed their family. And we don't experience that, and, and, and I prayerfully hope we don't as the church here, but that's why we can pray for our brothers and sisters that do. And so today, we want to take and look at some numbers. Ironically, today, we're looking at 70 weeks and how to count. And I think every commentator counted differently as I studied. But we don't want to forget the bigger picture isn't about how to count in the passage we're going to be looking at in Daniel. The bigger picture is that God has a plan. He is executing His plan. No one's going to change that. And that gives us peace. And that gives us hope. Now keep in mind the background here. Daniel, last week in in the first half of chapter 9, Daniel is looking through the scrolls of Jeremiah and he's reading it through. He's a man of the word. And he realizes that we should be just about to the end of 70 years of exile. Jeremiah had predicted for Israel that there would be 70 years that corresponded to 70 years where they missed the Sabbath of the land. and, And we'll get to that in a moment. But he's reading this and he's thinking, "We're we're like at 6869, Babylon has just fallen. Lord, what's going on?" And and this is a man that is in deep distress for his his nation. This is a man that is in deep distress for his people because he sees them ripped from the land. He knows Jerusalem has most of its stones overturned. It's a mess. His country is a mess. And so he prays. And he repents of their sins as a nation in his own. And he prays how long, O Lord, and he prays for God to give him direction. He prays to God to give him hope, to give him an idea of when will this happen. He prays for his country. He prays for his land. And that's where we left off last week. This week, we get to hear the answer. This week, we get to see how God responds, and God intentionally responds in several ways to give Daniel hope in the middle of distress, to give him hope in the middle of uncertainty, to give him hope when his heart is aching for his nation. And God shows up, and God answers that prayer. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we're just gonna look at eight verses this morning. 20 through 27. And we're going to see the answer to Daniel's prayer. And we're going to look at this text on a couple different levels. One is I don't want to miss the main points of the text. I don't want to miss what God is trying to do. The second way we'll look at it is with some of the technical details to try to understand these 70 weeks and, and to figure out what God is saying there. And for those of you that really get into that kind of stuff, that's going to be sort of fun. We can go down that rabbit hole for hours if we want to. But we need to remember the bigger picture that God is giving hope and a positive message to Daniel in times of distress. And that hope is by letting Daniel see the bigger picture of how God is working through all of history to accomplish His purposes. Summary for today is at the top of your notes. God answers Daniel's prayer for Jerusalem. He answers Daniel's prayer for Jerusalem and his people by showing how Jesus will ultimately reconcile us to God and set up his eternal kingdom. And so we're going to see not just an answer to immediate circumstances, we're going to see a beautiful picture of the gospel today. We're going to see a beautiful picture of the end of time today. And those are the things that give us a lasting hope. Daniel chapter 9. And like I said, 20 to 27. And we want to start with just 20 to 23, and this sets up the answer. But in 20 to 23, we see that God answers prayer, showing love for his children. God answers prayer, showing love for his children. This is the first reminder of hope that we get, is God hears you. God answers prayer because he loves his people. He loves his children, starting at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And the first thing we see in this text is Daniel is praying and, and it tells us he's praying for his land. He's praying for his country, the holy hill of my God. Jerusalem was up on a hill. And so he's praying for the city of Jerusalem and the temple and worship. And this is just such an amazing passage that gives me hope. What does it say happens while he's praying? The man Gabriel was sent. He was sent with an answer. He came swiftly and swift flight is a metaphor. Please don't conclude from that that all angels have wings that's not what it's about maybe it's a metaphor to say he got there as quickly as he could he he came and we don't quite understand how the supernatural and the natural world always interact god has it covered but we see that while daniel was speaking while he was praying not an hour later not a month later god was already responding to this prayer of repentance boom and this messenger appeared Gabriel, who we saw in the last chapter in the vision there, same messenger that appeared to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, same messenger that appeared to Mary. He had a cool job. He got to share with people what God was doing and and enlightened them to what God was doing. And so we see God moved quickly to answer Daniel's prayer. Because I believe it was a prayer of repentance. Repentance. Because I believe it was a prayer of a heart that was turned to God. And and now this doesn't mean that Daniel was sinless. Sinlessness is not a requirement for God to hear you. Repentance is. In fact, we know if there's unrepentant sin, it stops God from hearing us. But sinlessness isn't the requirement here. Repentance is. And that's what Daniel was doing. This prayer of repentance. We also see in those the end of verse 21 there, he came at the time of evening sacrifice. Now this is really cool as well because Daniel is still measuring time by by the religious practices of, of Judaism. Okay, they, they weren't doing sacrifices in Babylon. They hadn't done sacrifices for 70 years and this shows the faithfulness of this man who still recognized when the sacrifices should be and still was committed to pray when those sacrifices were to be. I love that. His habit of prayer, His habit of worship comes out in amazing ways. And so then we go on to verse 22. He made me understand, speaking of Gabriel, He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. And God is trying to give him enough understanding, enough insight into what is to come not to keep him from trusting God, but to, to assure him of the hope that he has in God. To assure him that God loves him. To assure him that God understands. To assure him that God, our sovereign God hasn't lost control as it can feel so many times in this fallen world. But God had not lost control. And he sent Gabriel to give that message. To help him understand. To give him insight. To give them understanding. If you think of the words there, it's the idea of broadening your perspective. Right? Broadening your perspective. When we see everything so close and so immediate and what's going on right in my life right now, we can get, ah! That. And God is saying, I'm going to give you insight. I'm going to give you understanding because this is not what's happening. This is what's happening. I'm going to give you a taste of it. A picture of it. Verse 23, which is my favorite verse in the passage. I think I put it as the verse to memorize this week. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I get chills when I read this because I think of what was happening in heaven. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The sovereign God who created everything, who is over all things, who is putting governments in place as they meet his purposes, as, he meets, as it meets his plans, takes the time to tell Daniel, I love you. You're beloved to me. The word used there is precious, like gold in fine garments, an element of Delight. Think about that. Let it blow your mind for a minute. God delighted in Daniel. And God delights in us when our hearts are turned to Him, when we have repentance, when we are seeking Him. This is an amazing verse that ties God's sovereignty and His power and His complete otherness with His love and and desire for relationship with us. Don't miss that. Because if we go either direction without the other, we go to some really dark places. God loved Daniel and answered his prayer and sent someone to comfort and show him the bigger picture. Now keep in mind, as we're going to study, God didn't answer the prayer the way Daniel wanted it to be answered. He didn't answer it with every wish and dream fulfilled, and that's what love is. No, he answered it by showing him, by expanding his perspective and insight and understanding to what God was accomplishing. But we know that God answers prayer, showing his love for his children, for those that follow his commandments. John fourteen twenty one. Jesus says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. That's how we show that we love God. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We love because God loved us first. And one of the ways we show that is by following his commands. And that just makes God delight in us even more. That is hope, isn't it? That's hope in difficult times to know that God loves us, that he calls his children beloved and that he answers prayer. He answers them with truth. He answers them by helping them know what they really need to know, but he answers. Villagers, you pray this week, don't lose heart. No matter what the news says, no matter what is happening around the world, don't lose heart. God hears you because He loves you. And we can take that home as an element of hope and an element of peace. So then we get to verses 24 through 27. Most of the commentaries said these are some of the hardest prophecy verses in the Bible one says they're the four most controversial verses in the Bible and that's when I was thinking why didn't I ask one of the elders to preach this text I could still do that Phil (laughs) and it's true as I read the commentators they are so widely divergent it's amazing because it's one of these exercises where every single phrase in the next four, four verses can be interpreted in like four different ways And then the next phrase, four different ways. And this tree ends up with hundreds of thousands of possibilities. And and I I remember one of the commentators I'm reading is from one of my professors when I was at Biola. Yes, we had books back then. It wasn't stored in tablets. Um, And I'm reading it thinking, how can you say that? How do you believe? You're a heretic. And no, he's not. we have different ways of viewing some of these things. And that is important to understand. This comes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this section of of Daniel. Maybe. That was my Mississippi accent again. (laughs) We have to hold all these things with a definite maybe. We don't know what the future holds. God does. And so it's fun to dig into some of these details And say, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's that. It's fun to dig into that, but that is not the bigger point here. The bigger point is God has control of all of history and all of the future and is working it to his plan. And so that is what I want us to get out of this, even as we dig into some of the 70 weeks and what the seven weeks are and 62 weeks and one week and as we sort of try to get our heads around all that. But the next point out of 24, and 24 serves as a summary verse for the next three. And so 24 says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. Remember, this is Gabriel answering Daniel of his request to spare Jerusalem or restore Jerusalem. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, about the Jewish nation, about Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, and we get six different things here. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Those are the seven purposes between, that God is saying is how He's working with these 70 weeks of history. Six purposes. And so, so it's, it's good to just look at some of these things. And, and we'll get to 70 weeks in a minute. Really, it means 70 sevens. 70, not, not 77, but 70 sets of seven. That's what the Hebrew says there. And in, in one of the ways that is often used in Hebrew writing, that represents years. So each week would represent seven years. And we'll, we'll explore that in a minute here. But so this is probably 70 weeks of years or 490 years. And, and his answer here that, that God gives to Daniel actually isn't just about what's going to happen this year in Jerusalem. The answer here is what is God doing from this point in history until the end of time? Just to summarize. And, and so, and that's the correct answer if we're going to have hope in difficult times is to have that perspective. So catch this, six things God will do from Daniel to the end of time, to the end of the age. First one, finish transgression. Transgression was often a, a term for rebellion, a type of sin. It's saying rebellion will cease. It will be ended. That word for finish is to end, to complete. And so whatever is going to happen in this time frame is going to end transgression. And finish, it, This has finality in its language. It will end what has been done to God's people. It will end the desolations that happened to the temple. It will end all of that. And if I'm Daniel, I'm thinking, that's cool. That's a good start. Number two, to put an end to sin. Wouldn't that be nice? Praise God when there's the day of no more sin. This is comforting after repentance. As God saw his heart of repentance... God is saying there's a time when, when sin is done. Sin is finished. Again, this has finality language. And so it's not an end of this little sin right here. This is the end of all sin. Imagine a world that is completely unstained by sin. I don't know if we can. But that's what is promised here. And those things, those things are, are, several of the things that help us understand that this is talking about the period of Daniel until the end. Because has transgression ended? No. Has sin ended? (laughs) No question, no. And so we have to understand these are things that are still coming and are clearly in Scripture said are still coming. Number three gives us how it's even possible. How is it possible to end sin? How is it possible to end transgression without just destroying the world that we deserve? And the third one here is just a beautiful picture looking forward to Christ. Remember, we're looking back at Christ. This is looking forward to Christ. Part of my plan for the future is to atone for iniquity. To atone for iniquity. This is how sin and its consequences are ended. See, God could just wipe everyone out and that would give the consequences, but then he doesn't have his church and his people, the nation of Israel, and he doesn't have that relationship. And so he devised a plan and has been executing his plan for Jesus Christ to come and to be the perfect sacrificial lamb, which is what atonement would refer to. He became the perfect atonement, the payment for our sin. And all throughout the Bible, we see words that Jesus' death is an atoning death. It's a payment for sin. There's no other way to look at it. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, when we repent and turn to Him, that payment becomes payment for my sin. His righteousness becomes a righteousness I don't deserve and I can't earn, but yet it's placed on me. God Takes this path of forgiving sin, but still honors his righteousness that demands that sin be paid for. What's really cool here is this is borrowing language from the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is in some of the things about the year of Jubilee that was happening in Leviticus 25, we, we see words that you have the Day of Atonement, and that's when they would take a lamb and sacrifice it yearly for the sins of the people. But every seven years, and the wording used is actually seven weeks, or seven one week, seven days, that represents this this time of the Sabbath. That every seven days, modeled after a week, every seven then years, the land is supposed to be in Sabbath and at rest. But then, in seven sevens, that verse pass, that verse talks about, in seven weeks, there is to be a year of jubilee a year of, and we don't understand this but in 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 the hebrew mind so every 49 years there was to be a year of jubilee where all debts were canceled everything was taken care of and this is language that is reminding us of the atonement for sin that leads to a year of jubilee that leads to complete getting rid of sin and its consequences And the year of Jubilee was to start on the day of atonement because atonement leads to Jubilee. And so point number two in your notes, I didn't fill in your your blank yet. Take heart. God has a timetable for the end of sin and for Jubilee. Take heart. God has a timetable for the end of sin and Jubilee. And that timetable hasn't changed we go on to the next three items in that list of what God is accomplishing to bring in everlasting righteousness. So not only will there be no sin, but there will be an everlasting righteousness where everybody is following God's righteousness. His righteousness prevails always, both in the world and in each of us. This again has language of the end of time because God's righteousness is not ruling this world today. It is there in the church, in our hearts, but someday it will be the norm and it will be the open way that this world operates. And we look forward to that. Represents a permanent relationship with a righteous God. So this is the eternal state he's talking about, the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth. Two more things he mentioned, to seal both vision and prophet. And to seal means to complete, to authenticate, to say that this is done, this is finished, there doesn't need to be anymore, more, and it's true. And so God is saying all of these things, these 70 weeks here, represent me ending prophecy. Fulfilling it all, bringing things to its conclusion, and proving that it's all true, and that it's all done. Again, finality language. This is all a prophecy to the end of time. And then finally the last thing there to anoint a most holy place, to restore true worship. There's lots of discussion of what this is as a holy person, a holy place. I think the best way to view this is that God is re-consecrating worship in, in in his temple, in his holy place, and so we will be in perfect communion with him, in perfect relationship with him. And so even here in verse 24, the scope of what we have to take these 70 weeks has to be a scope that goes from Daniel all the way to the end of time. Some of the theories are, well, it only goes to Antiochus Epiphanes or it only goes to Nero. That that ignores verse 24. This helps us interpret the Bible. And, and when it comes to interpreting the Bible in problem passages, let the Bible interpret the Bible. And in verse 24 here, we see that four out of those six things have language of finality of the end of time. And so that means the next three verses must go to the end of time. So that's sort of a guidepost, a guideline that we have to follow as we interpret the next verses. The bigger picture of verse 24, catch this, and I think I put it in your notes. The Bible is one story. God is redeeming creation back to himself through Jesus Christ. That's sort of my simple definition, probably too simplistic, but it helps me understand the Bible is one story. God is redeeming creation, including you and I, back to himself through Jesus Christ. And that's the story of these 70 weeks. Okay, we're ready to dive into the 70 weeks? Ready to get a little technical? Um, how many of you have studied the 70 weeks of Daniel before? About half, okay. I would bet we have about 20 different opinions right with those (laughs) hands that are raised up. And so at the beginning, I'll try to share a couple of the different ideas of what this represents, but then I'm going to tell you which way I'm going, and we'll talk about the verses from the framework that I I think is best for this passage. Maybe. This is one of those ones where, man, there's people I respect all over the place on how to interpret these verses. But let me give you point three first, so we, we catch the bigger picture. God mercifully gives us signposts that He is at work and in control of history and the future. Don't be anxious. Let me repeat that. God mercifully gives us signposts that He is at work and in control of history and the future. Don't be anxious. And if you're thinking, I've heard this already in Daniel before, probably like 10 times. Because that is God's message for Daniel, who is worried about his nation, who is concerned about what's going on. He's trying to give hope that comes from a true foundation. So verse 25, we'll start there. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And right from the start, you should be going, what? I don't understand. A week, seven weeks, 62 weeks. And so we're going to break this down. And really, it helps you to think of these, these weeks that are given, these 70 weeks. We have one section that's the first seven weeks. Then we have a section that's 62 weeks. I'm going to argue for a gap after that. And then you have a section that is the final week. Okay. And remember, there are gaps all the time in prophecy. Remember the mountains? And there's valleys in between. And so, so that is the breakdown of what we want to look at because the passage is going to deal with each of those. And so letter A there is the first seven weeks. And that goes, and I would present that it's going from the word to restore Jerusalem to the finish of the rebuilding. Okay? From the word, from the word to restore Jerusalem to the finish of the rebuilding. Now it's, it's, We've got to start getting into the weeds here. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. So we know that there's going to be this time period and after the time period, an anointed one is going to come. What is that language of? An anointed one. Jesus. It actually means Messiah. Messiah. So someone like a Messiah, now sometimes it was used for other people, someone like a Messiah, a prince or a ruler will come. Now some would say that's after six, seven weeks. Some would say that's after 62 weeks. In this case, I think NIV and New American Standard do a better job of translating than the ESV. The Hebrew here says there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, okay? There actually is, in the original Hebrew, no punctuation there. Some later scribes have argued about it and added punctuation. But the idea here is, is that the anointed one actually comes after 69 weeks. 62 plus 7, you can do this. 69. (laughs) That the anointed one comes after the 69 weeks, but somehow there's this breakdown between 7 weeks and 62 weeks. Now, before I lose you, there are two different ways, there's different ways to view all of this. One, and most scholars would agree that weeks here does not mean actual weeks. But we know from usage in prior Old Testament, usage in Deuteronomy, for instance, and in some of the others, that it is common for them to, to reference a week as seven years, seven days being seven years. And so that's what I'm going to go with, that these represent seven weeks, represent seven weeks of years, because it's seven sets of seven. So that's 49 years. And then 62 times seven. Is it roughly 430, 434? I have it somewhere in my notes that I can't find. Um, and, and so that these are actual years is what he's referencing. Now, other scholars say, I can't figure out how to put that into history. And actually, instead of taking those as literal years, we're going to take those as symbolic years. The advantage of the symbolic way is then you don't have to fit it into history and you can sort of do whatever you want with the prophecy. Sorry, that's probably a little disingenuous to word it that way. (laughs) Um, The thing is we want to take it literally until there's a real compelling reason not to as we interpret God's word. And we know from Israel's past, with the year of Jubilee, where the same language is used, with the Sabbath years being patterned off the creation week, we know that there is an understanding to the hearer that a week of sevens represents seven years. And so that's where we want to go, unless there's a compelling reason not to. So you start to get the ideas of, depending on where you choose, you're going to go different directions of what this passage means. I'll I'll give you one other illustration, and and I usually won't go through all the the possibilities with you. But it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the Anointed one, and it gives the timing. So when was the word to restore and, and build Jerusalem? There are at least four major possibilities of where that is that then change how you interpret the whole rest of it. One is something that's Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah's prophecy that say, after 70 years, exile has ended and Jerusalem will be restored. That was in 586 BC. Remember, before Christ, the larger numbers are earlier in time. 586 BC. Another section of people think, well, that probably is Cyrus's or Darius's decree in Ezra 1 in 538 BC to go back and rebuild the temple. So we're already 50 years different, Right? Um, Some say, well, no, 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 that doesn't work in history. It's probably Artaxerxes' decree to Ezra in 458 to go rebuild the temple. All of these, by the way, are recorded in the scripture. So these aren't made up (laughs) events. All of them could be a word to restore the temple. Now, others say, well, no, 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 none of those all deal with the temple. The only one that actually deals with rebuilding Jerusalem is Artaxerxes' decree to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 2. That's in 445 B.C. To go rebuild the walls implies rebuilding the city. So which is it? Don't know. (laughs) Actually, I'm going to hold this morning. It's one of the last two. Um, the last two from Artaxerxes, both if you fill out the time frame and, and you view these weeks as years, both ends up with the Anointed One during the ministry of Christ. Exactly, isn't that cool? This is written before Jesus. This is ri- even even liberal scholars that try to say it wasn't prophecy think it was written like in the second century BC, still before Christ. And, and so, this is a prophecy that Jesus is coming. That a Messiah is coming. And so all of that depends on how you interpret the years. Is this referring to the Messiah or Antioch's Epiphanies? Is it returning to the time of Christ's first coming, second coming, preterist or futurist? You know, we, we can talk about all that. All of those change the view of how to interpret this passage. Probably more than you really wanted to know today. In Bible class time today. Um, four major views that I want to run through. And, and then I'll tell you what mine is and we'll go through the rest of the text and apply that. One view is people think these were literal years, but from Jeremiah's prophecy, and ended at Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and remember we talked about him a couple of weeks ago, and he's the guy that came in and defiled the temple, put up an altar to Zeus, sacrificing pigs on the altar, just horrible things. And he killed the high priest of the time, which is who they would say is the anointed one. All kinds of ways that you can go down this path, Because if you choose to go down this path, you have to interpret everything that's coming in light of that. And so uh, my problem with that is it completely misses the point that the purpose of this is for the end of time, and that's what the language has. And I think it misses the atonement of sin. And so that's the Antiochus view. Jesus, another view is the Jesus in 70 AD view. That's the AD view that says this was about Jesus and it culminated at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so they have a different way of viewing all the weeks that if you're interested in, we can talk about later. But they actually have to view the years as symbolic because it doesn't fit in history otherwise. And so they would say, oh no, those just represent periods of time that we can make any period of time we want which is one of the problems with that view. It's not consistent. And so this refers to the anointed one being Jesus, but then um, Nero and and Titus as general that destroyed Jerusalem are the ones that ended it. Third view, and yes, this time the view that I'm going to hold is the last view. Some say, we sort of know where you're going. Um, Third view is, is something, just bear with me, the symbolic futurist view. They would say the years are symbolic, and end in the second coming of Jesus but they just don't worry about how it all fits in and so they would say it's from Cyrus's decree and then to the birth of Christ is the first 7 years and then the or 7 weeks 62 weeks is from Christ to the tribulation and then the last week is the cutting off of the church and that one has has some has some things going for it the last view and what what I'm going to talk about today in the time that we have left is really we're going to take these years as literal and that the end of time is still coming. That this refers to the time of Jesus' second coming at the end. And so these are literal years ending with the second coming of Christ. So it would be a futurist view, for those that know your, your titles for the views, a literal futurist view is what this would be we described as. And I've already talked about the years. I need to go through some of my notes here um, some of the reasons why I don't think you can end it with Antiochus and Nero here is, like I said, the language of verse 24 is clearly about the, the end of time, the end of the age. And so if we're, if we're letting scripture interpret scripture, I think we have to understand this is through all of history and that we have to, to understand that sin didn't finish with those men and transgression didn't finish with those men. The other thing, the reason why it can't be Antiochus in my mind is Jesus mentions some of this language and says it's still coming. And I'm going to go with Jesus and what he said. John the Apostle uses this language and says it's still coming. And so that rules out at least the first view that I mentioned. And so we would view this as a literal Christological view that this is referring to the Messiah as Christ and the second coming as the end of time. Okay. Seven weeks then. All of that point A. The others won't be nearly as long. Seven weeks and 62 weeks point B. 62 weeks is the finish of rebuilding Jerusalem to the time of Jesus's ministry. So again, like I said, we have seven weeks and 62 weeks that together they point to Christ and that works out historically if you take either um, Artaxerxes' um, edict to Ezra or Nehemiah. Um, and those point to Christ. But there's something different about the first seven weeks and the 62 weeks. And if you look at history, now, now this is not out of Scripture. This is looking historically. That's about the time when Jerusalem, the city, was rebuilt. Where there were roads and there were walls and there were, it mentions a moat, Right? It says, then 62 weeks, it will be built again with squares or roads or neighborhoods and a moat, but in troubled times. Now, the moat doesn't necessarily mean water. The word is actually trench. And one of the common things, there's not a lot of water in the area. One of the common things they would do is build a trench around the walls. Why? It was a cheap way to make the walls higher. And so it was a defensive measure. And, and so what this refers to is Jerusalem is set up probably after those first seven weeks. And so then for 62 weeks, it has these neighborhoods, it has this moat, but in troubled time. And so the first seven weeks, like I said, were the period from the edict to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and in the, in the temple. The next 62 weeks is the finish of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, to the time of Jesus' ministry, but it will be troubled time. Um that's about four thirty-four years. Hey, I got that right. There it is in my notes. Um, and so, if you if you if you plot that out, depending on if you use prophetic years or calendar years, and there's all kinds of description on that, it gets you'll it, make your head swim. We're probably looking at either ending about the time of Jesus' baptism, or about the time of his Palm Sunday and crucifixion if you take this as literal prophecy and plot it out, it was saying when Jesus would come. Which is an amazing, amazing thing. They've rebuilt Jerusalem. There's opposition though, it says. It says in troubled time. And we know there's wars. And we we know that epiphanies came in during that time. and, And we know that there was all kinds of trouble. But Jerusalem was there. And that's that 62 weeks. And then we come to after the 62 weeks, where I would argue there's a gap. After the 62 weeks, in verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Shall have nothing. Let's stop there for a minute. So after the 62 weeks, this is before the 70th week, but after the 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off. The word for cut off is a word for death. It actually is a word that was used for sacrifice. Sacrifice and I get chills when I start to to read this, It, it says the anointed one, the Messiah shall be sacrificed and have nothing. God here is graciously showing Daniel the gospel. Showing Daniel that there's going to be ups and downs, but Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming and he will bring an end to sin. The anointed one is Jesus here. I think that's the best way to interpret this. He will come, but he will die. And, and all through the, the weak prophecy, there are ups and downs. Daniel finds out that Israel is going to, an edict is going to come to rebuild, but then there's going to be trouble and war, and then the Messiah is going to come, and then he's going to be killed. And then the Antichrist will come and and it's awful, but then there will be an end to it all by Christ. So it's all these ups and downs and God is saying, just just chill. I've got this. Because I am controlling history. Verse goes on, 26, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war, Desolations are decreed. There's a lot we could go into here, but I'll I'll just share a couple things. The people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come, probably references the Antichrist. We see in the next verse him referred to again in a in a very negative light. We saw it in Daniel chapter seven. Some of the same terms that are used, but the prince who is to come is the Antichrist who is to come. His people, the people under the same rule, the the rule of Satan, are going to come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. That could be referring to AD 70 there. In fact, I think it probably is, because I think we're dealing with this gap here. It could also be referring to the tribulation, where the city and the sanctuary is destroyed again, the temple. Its end shall come like a flood, with armies overwhelming it. And then the, the next phrase is really interesting. And to the end, there shall be war. And so that again is gap type language that says, yeah, it starts with the Messiah sacrificed and then the temple's destroyed. But then to the end of time, there are going to be wars. There's going to be opposition. And so we see there is not going to be peace on earth until Jesus returns. We have peace in our hearts because that's where Jesus dwells but there is not going to be peace in this fallen world until Jesus returns. And that's part of the news given to Daniel. That's part of the up and down news that's trying to broaden his perspective. Desolations are decreed. And at that point, it's probably, I would argue, referring to the final desolation of the temple in Revelation. It could be that, that AD 70 was a foretaste of that. But what we have here is... This gap that after 62 weeks, the Messiah comes, is crucified, and that's where the church age that we live in right now exists. And so there's this gap before the last week, which finalizes history, which is really cool. So we're gap people. From a prophetic perspective, we're in the gap. We're between 69 and 70. This election was in the gap, and God knows about it. He's using it for his purposes. And we can be confident that week 70 is coming. And that's where the next verse is, the 70th week, the tribulation. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Again, we just have a description of the end like that. And so here we have a a future look at the tribulation that is going to happen, we believe, after the rapture of the church, where God now is bringing his wrath on the world to try to turn people to him. So just a a couple things out of that. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for a week. The he there is the prince that is to come. That's the Antichrist, we would argue. And so the Antichrist makes a strong covenant with the many. And, And keep in mind, and I'm going to run through just a lot of details quickly. We're out of time. Gabriel here is talking to Daniel about the Jewish nation. And so here, it really looks like the Antichrist is going to make a strong covenant with the Jewish nation, the many that are part of the Jewish nation, for one week. What does one week represent? Seven years, okay? So the Antichrist is going to come and make this incredible covenant, although probably out of a position of strength and mandating, with Israel for seven years. There's going to be peace. Man, it's it's a... It's a treaty you can't resist. A treaty of protection. Great economic terms for seven years. And we see from this, this is where um, in a chart that I'll, I'll post online, we see that for the first half of the tribulation, there's this time of, of relative peace. But then halfway through this verse says, the Antichrist puts an end to sacrifice and offering, Desolates the temple puts an end to all worship other than worship of himself. And so he got his way for half a year, used that for his purposes, and then he desolates worship. He breaks the treaty with Israel. It becomes a terrible time of tribulation for both the world and Israel in that last three and a half years. Revelation 13 says, And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. This is referring to that time halfway through the tribulation. Telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And so we get a picture of this image being set up. And basically people are killed at that time if they don't worship the image of, of the beast. A dark time. And da- and and God is telling Daniel that's halfway through this the seventieth week. Great, lots of hope there. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate the Antichrist, who is destroying worship. But then letter E, the end of the story. The end of the seventieth weeks, the last phrase until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This isn't just saying God won. Understand this. It is saying God wins, which is cool. It is saying that God wins and it has been decreed already. That God has already decided the course of history and his decision for the course of history will happen. And this is where hope comes in again. The Antichrist does all of these things. Does all of these horrible things through the, throughout all of time, and the, or Satan through all of time, and then the tribulation. And in the end, the desolator is ended. It's done. The final seven years is terminated. The tribulation is terminated by Jesus' coming, the binding of Satan, and the establishment of his earthly kingdom. And sin is brought to an end. Transgression is brought to an end, and righteousness reigns on the earth. Is that a good end to the story? That is why point number three in your notes, and I don't want to to forget what point number three was. If I can find it in my notes, (laughs) Um, God mercifully gives us signposts that He is at work, and in control of history and the future. Don't be anxious. See, Daniel got a glimpse. And he got a glimpse of this roller coaster of events, some good for Israel, some horrible for Israel, but in the end, amazing for God's purposes. God has already decreed that he is redeeming creation back to himself through his son. That doesn't change. This week didn't change that. Nothing will change that. And so we can be a people of hope. We can be a people of peace in the most distressing of times. And I would argue that as we are that kind of people that trusts so completely in God that that will open up avenues for the Gospel that you haven't seen opened up. And we're to walk through those doors and share Jesus Christ and share the Gospel. we want going to run into a time of communion here. And you each have your, your little packets but what a great passage to to study right before communion that there is going to be an anointed one and he is going to be cut off he's going to be sacrificed but that will atone for our sins and pay for our sins and enable us to be part of God's righteous kingdom for all of time that is what we are remembering when we come and we remember communion see the little wafer on the top represents his body a body that was willingly sacrificed for us in our place. The juice represents Jesus' blood, the anointed one being cut off. And that to me represents forgiveness. It represents his payment for my sin. And every time I drink that, I think of the depth of my sin and the depth of his forgiveness. And it's an amazing reminder that that every month as we take this, reminds me to live for Christ, reminds me what he has given me. And so I'd like to take a moment just to bow our heads and to meditate and to make sure our hearts are right with God, to make sure we are remembering what He's done. Just pray silently as we do. If you want to sing along with worship team, please do. And we'll take this moment to prepare our hearts for communion, and then we'll take it together. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for broadening our perspective to where it's not just seeking an answer to prayer for our own little circumstances. But Lord, your answer involved Christ coming and being the atonement for our sins and then Christ coming again and putting an end to sin. That's the bigger picture, Lord. That's what we take hope in. Lord, help us to be people of that hope and cause people to ask questions about the hope that is in us, Lord. We praise you and love you and thank you for your sacrifice. In your name, amen.